Hey guys, a couple of brief announcements before we dig in. First, on 816, I'll be joining Lainey Hobbs in the True Crime Convos group on Spotify Live. Now, if downloading apps isn't your thing, well, you can listen to the live stream on the True Crime Fan Club's Facebook page as well. This is going to be part two of the Stephen Avery case. It's sure to be a good time, so check it out. Then, on August 19th and 20th, Darren and I will be attending the Dark History and Horror Con in Champaign, Illinois. That is being held at the Illinois Conference Center, and the link for tickets can be found in the show notes of this episode. On Saturday, the 20th, I will be doing an hour-long presentation on The Creep and his case, which is sure to be somewhat enthralling, or at the very least, I'll be talking for a long time. Now, if you can't make that event, don't worry. We will be posting the live recording exclusively in our Patreon, and it shall never see the light of day on our regular feed. So go ahead, help us to continue to create the pod and get some bonus content for less than what you pay for a gallon of gas. The link to our Patreon will also be in the show links. Finally, on the following weekend, which is 826 through 828, Darren and I will be down in the Lone Star State, in Dallas to be exact, at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Now, this particular festival lineup is off the hook. It's insane. There are so many great shows and creators, and Darren, and Darren's going to be there too, all there just to hang out with you guys and talk true crime. At that event, I will be doing a panel on Israel Keys with Josh Hallmark of True Crime Bullshit. That's going to be amazing. I promise I will ask Josh if he thinks that just maybe that Israel Keys has the feds running around on a wild goose chase. That'll probably piss him off. This too will be recorded, so if you can't make it live and in person, it will be published exclusively for our Patreon members as well. So that's it. Other than to remind you to take a second, if you love the pod, to rate and review it, follow and subscribe on Apple and Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. 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 Wherever you get your The investigation into the Hunter Sherman killings has run cold, save for some recent information regarding the Russian that has filtered in from a source in Calgary, which, despite the new info, does not elevate his status to anything more than a person of interest and is nowhere close to reaching the level of probable cause that is required to request an arrest warrant from a judge. So this case has Omaha PD absolutely perplexed, And like any case that has gone cold, time is both an enemy and a friend. It's true that often within the first 48 hours that police have the best opportunity to crack a case, but when that can't be accomplished, it's oftentimes the passage of time and the development of new forensic technology that can and will break a cold case wide open. And where this case sits right now is firmly in between these two periods of time in limbo. As you are aware, well, if you've been listening to the pod in numerical order, that over the course of this season that we have been familiarizing you with everyone involved with this case, starting with the victims, Tom Hunter and Shirley Sherman, their respective families, the officers conducting the investigation, and as you know, I represented Anthony Garcia, who you will learn more about in this episode. But I didn't do it alone, far from it. The core of the defense team was my wife, Allison, and also my dad, Bob Sr. Now, you haven't heard much about us yet because, well, we aren't involved at this point in the case. So while the investigation is slowing down to a grinding halt, 
we figured this might be the perfect time to introduce you to some of the defense team who will become central players as this story progresses. We're going to start with Allison Mata, my wife, formerly Allison Reese. Now, Allie grew up as one of four siblings in the suburbs of Philadelphia, daughter to Gary and Leslie. And I will tell you this, much like Henry Hill of Goodfellas fame wanted to be a gangster for as far back as he can remember, Allison wanted to be a defense attorney. Now, I saw physical proof of this when she had showed me a little note that she had scribbled when she was five or six when I was at the in-law's house long ago, declaring that she was going to be a lawyer, just like Matlock when she grew up. And I'll be damned if she didn't do just that. It wasn't easy. She had an unorthodox education, which she would kill me if I went into on the pod, so we'll leave it at that. And she married young, not to me, not that time. And she had two kids, Courtney and Brian, at an equally young age, who I have had the honor and distinct pleasure of raising as my own for the past 22 years. I love them both beyond words. So she made her way through college as a young mother of two, then took the LSAT shortly after graduating and was accepted to and enrolled at Chicago Kent School of Law, which is where we met. Now, she is going to kill me for telling this one on the podcast, but it's just too damn good to keep from y'all. And she'll say that I told it wrong, but I didn't. So in our first year, which they call 1L, and that's what they call it in law school. It's 1L, 2L, 3L. After 3L, you're done. We had a class called torts, which is focused on civil litigation and the different causes of action under which you can sue. And that class was a requirement for all 1Ls. So I was a bit older when I started law school, 29 to be exact, and I had decided that I was going to be all business. No sitting in the back of the class, dozing off. I was going to sit in the front row in all of my classes and pay rapt attention, take copious notes, and answer all the questions that were thrown at me. So walking into torts, I start heading down the stairs of the medium-sized auditorium probably about 10 minutes before the first law school class of my life was set to begin. There were three seating sections with two sets of stairs that flanked a large middle section of the room. Now, I noticed as I descended down the stairs that the first long table that spanned the entire length of the middle section had already been filled with eager young law students who were all craving knowledge. Damn, I didn't get there early enough, I thought to myself. I then turned my attention to the left side of the room which was on the side that I happened to be walking down. I spotted a lone open seat on the front left, making a beeline for the singular glorious front row seat that remained. I mean, this was more than a seat to me. It was a mindset. It was a mission to be a serious student and serious students sit in the front row, damn it. I was nearly halfway down. There was no one walking down in front of me. My path was unencumbered. No threat of losing the seat to an interloper seemed to exist. As I approached, my eyes were fixed on the seat. My intent was clear to anyone who may have been paying attention. And it was then that I noticed a short woman with dark brown hair, almost black, but not quite, standing in front of the first row table, talking to a woman who was seated next to the open chair. She was speaking with her hands in an animated fashion, all fire and brimstone, Another future litigator, I thought to myself as I closed in. See, I didn't view her as a threat to my seat, as there was zero chance that she would be able to navigate 
all the way around the entire length of the table before I reached my destination. No chance. The moment this fleeting thought left my mind, we locked eyes. Briefly. I quickly diverted my eyes back to the seat, at which time my intention became obvious. It was clear and unambiguous, and it was a fatal mistake. As this diminutive powerhouse of a woman followed my gaze and knew exactly where it was that I was heading, without a word being spoken between us, and suddenly, to my great and horrible surprise, this woman who gave exactly zero shits about who thought what about her, hurtled her entire body over the table with cat-like reflexes and firmly planted herself in what I thought was destined to be my seat. I stopped in my tracks, stunned, looking around the auditorium at a room full of strangers, the look of disbelief plastered on my face, my eyes asking anyone that cared, did you see that? Did you see that? I mean, this is law school, for God's sakes. No one is jumping over tables for seats, or so I thought. I looked at her, and she turned around with a sly grin and simply said, Sorry, this is my friend, nodding towards the woman who would have been my seat neighbor, and she left it at that. I settled for a second row seat in the middle section. At that time, as I sat down, one word came to mind to describe her. Tenacious. Little did I know that six years later, that woman would become my wife, the mother of my children, and the best damn lawyer that I know. As that little table hopping story, well, that is but a microcosm of what makes her tick as a lawyer. Tenacity. She pushes all in on every hand, no matter what cards she's been dealt. To Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 18. We left off last episode with Omaha PD getting some fresh information about the Russian. Well, if we're being honest, the information was there to be had long before it was actually tracked down as a former colleague had contacted the feds with info about the Eastern Bloc dock. We learned that his former trainee, a man that we are referring to as Alan Matthews, had been used by the Russian to mule in various deadly weapons, namely assault knives and a cleaver, from Miami, Florida, back to Canada. We also learned that the Russian had located the hotel where his fellow pathologist was staying, and had the weapon sent to the hotel in the name of Alan Matthews, without his knowledge or consent. Matthews ultimately agreed to carry these goods over the border, as it was the Russian who held the keys to the kingdom, in terms of Matthews being offered a position at the Calgary Medical Examiner's Office. At this point in time, it seems to Matthews to be nothing more than the Russian trying to avoid paying the duty taxes required to ship them over proper, as Matthews did not learn until his return that the Russian 
had been subjected to questioning in regards to a double homicide that had taken place a year earlier in Omaha, Nebraska. Needless to say, this bit of information not only sent Matthew's mind spinning, wondering if he had just unwittingly aided a potential murderer secure weapons that could not be directly linked to the Russian, but instead would lead law enforcement right to him. But he was also sincerely concerned that his life may be in peril because, at least in the mind of the Russian, he was the loose end, being that he had knowledge of the knives. And loose ends? Well, they must be eliminated. Matthews had more to tell, but you're not getting that right now, as we're shifting back to the mercurial Anthony Garcia and his time in the pathology department at Creighton University, where a once optimistic Garcia is now beginning to see that more tumultuous times lay ahead as he and Chandra Butra appear to be plowing full speed towards a head-on, career-threatening collision. So, let's dig in. Last we heard, on February 14th and 15th of 2001, there had been two separate occurrences that had taken place involving Anthony Garcia, and neither one of them was good. On the morning of the 14th, Hunter and another staff member walk in on Garcia performing an autopsy to observe. According to a memo prepared by Bill Hunter on the 14th for Garcia's file, Garcia was given some advice on autopsy technique, and Garcia responds to the constructive criticism in a, quote, somewhat disrespectful manner for a resident, end quote. Hunter does not articulate exactly what Garcia said that amounted to being viewed as disrespectful. We'll just have to leave that to our imaginations. On February 15th, in the early morning hours, Garcia and Butra apparently butt heads during a conference that Butra is conducting. She claims in an email entitled Rude Behavior by Dr. Anthony Garcia, which was drafted at 5.06 a.m., that Garcia was mouthing off without any reason or provocation and defining his actions as a belligerent tirade. Later on the 15th, at approximately 4.45 p.m., Bill Hunter tracks Garcia down, and a conversation ensues in which Garcia is essentially instructed to tone it down with respect to Butra. And it is made crystal clear to Garcia that he is the resident and she is his superior. And on top of that, she is one of the best surgical pathologists in the hospital. Ultimately, Hunter instructs Garcia to apologize to Butra for his behavior. Garcia, in turn, basically tells Hunter, hard pass on apologizing to Butra, and that if she persists in her abusive behavior, that he's gonna sue her. Garcia leaves the meeting with Bill Hunter with instructions that he should memorialize his position in writing. As such, he prepares a letter dated February 15th, addressed to Bill Hunter only, wherein Garcia tells his side of the story, and his story is vastly different than that of his superior, as it claims that it is in fact Butra that demeans and abuses Garcia on a daily basis. And today's early morning conference was not the exception, but in fact, was the rule. Garcia also articulates that he is acutely aware that Butra is given free reign to abuse residents without fear of retribution from the university, and this unchecked power has resulted in her becoming a tyrant. 
On February 16th, Hunter prepares another memo for Garcia's file, wherein he describes a situation where on February 9th, Garcia was using unprofessional language during a telephone call with another doctor from the Allegiant hospital system. Curiously, it does not appear that Hunter initially felt that this event was significant enough to draft a memo, as this memo is not drafted until the 16th of February, which coincidentally is after the two more recent incidents and the sit-down with Garcia. Hunter then proceeds to draft yet another memo that describes the meeting with Garcia that occurred yesterday. It states, on February 15th, 2001 at 4.45 p.m., I confronted Dr. Garcia regarding an incident reported to me earlier in the day by Dr. Chandra Butra that had occurred on the afternoon of February 14th during the California Tumor Registry Surgical Unknown Conference. Please see Dr. Butra's email. Dr. Garcia was defensive and unapologetic and defended his responses to Dr. Butra. He claimed that it was Dr. Butra that it was abusive and demeaning. I tried to get Dr. Garcia to explain exactly what happened, but he continued to go into a diatribe regarding the ineffectiveness of Dr. Butra as a teacher and her style of teaching. I explained to Dr. Garcia that her method of teaching is not different from most of the pathology faculty and counseled Dr. Garcia on the necessity of being respectful and professional with his interactions with faculty, residents, and staff. I asked him to apologize to Dr. Butra in writing. He refused and said that if she persists, he will sue Dr. Butra for, quote, abuse, end quote. I then asked the doctor to submit in writing to me an explanation of what happened during the conference and again stressed the importance of working in a professional manner with all members of the pathology department. At 10.34 on February 16th, Anthony Garcia drafts an email to the chief resident, which reads as follows. As you are chief resident, I would like you to inform Butra that she has insolent behavior, and she has, on many occasions, humiliated, degraded, and insulted me. If she illegally defames my name again or abuses me, I will sue her, Anthony J. Garcia. MD, CC, Dr. Hunter, and Brumbeck. Real excited about today's new sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. So me, personally, I've actually been using Acorns for years prior to them becoming a wonderful sponsor of ours. And I love this company because what they do is they will take your spare change and invest it in the market for you. It's really a wonderful feature. And if you're intimidated by getting into the market because you don't have knowledge or you're worried that you don't have money, this is the way to do it. So make sure you check out Acorns. So right now, head to acorns.com slash DD or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier one compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorn.com slash DD. Investing involves risk. 
Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors, LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokered services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities, LLC. Member FINRA backslash SIPC. For more information, visit Acorns. Of note is that Garcia did not actually carbon copy Hunter and Brumbeck in this email. Instead, 45 seconds later, the same email is sent directly to Butra, Hunter, and Brumbeck. At 11.11 a.m., Chandra Butra forwards the same email to Roger Brumbeck, only she has printed out the email and has handwritten a note to Bill Hunter, yet doesn't send it to him. It reads as follows. Bill, well, how many more documentations do you need? I think we have enough, quote, good cause, end quote, for immediate termination of a probationary first-year resident. He should have been on probation long ago. Is he? I got this handbook for you from Name Unintelligible. No, I didn't mention anything by name yet, but I may have to if nothing happens to this end. Signed, CB. Now, what is interesting is that this handwritten note to Bill Hunter, which actually contains a veiled threat to Hunter, that she will be forced to go over his head if he does not fire Garcia, or at the very least place him on probation, actually goes to the chair of the department, Roger Brumbeck, and not to Hunter at all. It seems clear to me that there is some gamesmanship at play here by Butra, as she has sent what Larry David refers to in Curb Your Enthusiasm as the accidental text on purpose. Now, sub in email for text on this occasion, but it's the same concept wherein she has a note written to Bill Hunter telling him that he better fire Garcia or at the very least place him on probation or else. But she accidentally sends it to Hunter's boss instead on purpose. Yes, Butra has one goal, which is to rid herself of Anthony Garcia once and for all. So it becomes clear that with Garcia's threat of a lawsuit against Butra, that the memos to file that Hunter prepared on the 16th relating to a previously unreported incident from February 9th occurred after this email from Garcia was circulated. Hunter is now actively building the case for the university having good cause in the event that Garcia is terminated. Remember this one fact, as it will be germane down the road at trial Anthony Garcia has no idea what is occurring between Butra, Hunter, and Brumbeck as far as these private communications between the three doctors is concerned. It's an important fact. Trust me. Mercifully, the 16th of February falls on a Friday, and I am sure that Bill Hunter is hoping that the weekend will allow for a brief respite and that cooler heads will prevail on Monday. Unfortunately, it only gets worse. Hey, what's up, y'all? Bob here. As you guys know, I am an old man talking about old cases and new ones. So old that, in fact, when I was getting into law school, just starting, that is when the internet was becoming a thing. Me, like everybody else, had no idea how it worked. We were all using dial-up modems that took forever to load pages. Now, fast forward here to the last 10 years and everything has changed. Every kid has a cell phone or every kid wants a cell phone, which 
is a terrifying prospect to me because I can't watch my kids every second of every day and they're on their devices. I have no idea what they're listening to or what they're watching and they have access to everything, everything that you can imagine. And that is really, really scary. So that brings me to what I want to talk to you about today, which to me is an absolute lifesaver, not just for the parents, but for our kids. And that is Gab. Gab is a leader in safe smartphones and watches for kids, teens, and tweens. With no social media apps, no internet browser, and it has GPS tracking. Gab devices were built from the ground up specifically for kids and teens and are the way to keep your kids safely connected to us. Gab phones and watches are still tech kids actually want. That's the big thing, right? Is that you want your kids to want to have the tech. So there's unlimited talk and text, a clean music streaming app, and over a hundred third-party apps that can be installed at the parent's discretion. Look, there are other safe device options or parental controls that let you know what's already been accessed, but Gab's phones and watches are built with smart filtration that proactively blocks harmful content before it ever reaches your kid. And it's not just what they're seeing, it's who's trying to contact your children. And as a parent of four, it is a constant fear of mine. Gab completely eliminates that fear, which is incredibly reassuring. And that's one less thing that I have to worry about. I absolutely love that it's got so many great apps that the kids are going to want to use because wanting the kid to have the device is the key. And they're going to love Gab because it's got everything that you can need. So this is the absolute best time to check them out because right now Gab is offering $25 off any device to new customers with no contract required. That's 25 off any Gab smartphone or smartwatch. Just go to gab.com slash defense. That's where you'll get this best deal. That's G-A-B-B dot com slash defense. Gab.com slash defense. Trust me on this one. If you've got young kids, you are going to be thanking Gab for years to come. At 9.39 p.m. on the 16th, a 67-year-old woman is pronounced dead. She has died of apparent cardiac arrest. Her body is transported to St. Joseph's Hospital for an autopsy to be performed. It so happens that Anthony Garcia is the resident on duty, and he will perform the autopsy under the supervision of a faculty member who is also present at the hospital. The autopsy, in fact, is performed by Garcia, presumably under the watchful eye of the faculty member on duty. On Sunday morning, 219, a handwritten note addressed to the pathology personnel on duty at St. Joseph's is received. It reads as follows. Just a heads up for you. When the funeral home came to pick up the body of the deceased, she was face down, which is not a good thing. The guy from the funeral home asked if there was a reason that the body was left face down. So I asked Dr. Hamish, and he said that there was no reason for it, and it shouldn't have been done like that. I gave the funeral guy Anthony's number, as well as the supervising faculty member's number, and also Dr. Brumbeck's number, and said he should call Dr. Brumbeck on Monday. He wasn't happy about the whole situation. Just wanted to give you the info so you weren't caught off guard. Have fun. 
Roger Brumbeck drafts and sends the following memo to Bill Hunter. It reads as follows. On Monday, February 19th at 8.30 a.m., I received a phone call from Bill at the mortuary in Omaha regarding a weekend autopsy performed by Dr. Anthony Garcia on a patient. He was very unhappy about what he found when he obtained the body after the autopsy. He found the body laying face down, which markedly distorted the face. He found this completely unacceptable and intended on discussing the problem with the family. This is completely unacceptable for the resident to allow this to happen. Please investigate this incident as soon as possible. R. Brumbeck. So Brumbeck passes the buck to Bill Hunter to deal with Anthony and has given him no guidance as to which direction he should head. Now at this point, Garcia in the minds of Hunter, Butra, and to a lesser extent Brumbeck has passed the point of no return. Accordingly, at 1.10 p.m. on the 19th of February, Hunter reaches Garcia and tells him that he needs to speak with him in his office immediately. At 1.15 p.m., Garcia makes his way to Hunter's office. He has no illusions about what's in store for him in his boss's office. It's unknown whether or not at this point Garcia is aware of how significant of a mistake it was to leave the body laying face down on the table after the autopsy. But the end result is that the body, in particular the face, became so disfigured that there is nothing that the funeral home will be able to do to right the ship and they now are having to deal with the surviving family members that are not only dealing with the tremendous grief from the loss of a loved one, but who now have to be told that there is no way possible for it to be made so that they can have an open casket for the loved one they lost to say a final farewell. Frankly, it's a catastrophic event, one in which Garcia may never rebound from professionally. That being said, Garcia knocks on Hunter's door and is summoned in. Hunter proceeds to read Anthony the Riot Act regarding the nightmare that occurred during the weekend. Hunter needs to hear what possessed Anthony to leave the body face down on the table. He had to know better. This was Pathology 101 level knowledge, which he knows that Garcia possesses. Anthony sits quietly as Hunter sits in front of him, burning a hole through him with a steely gaze. Anthony finally speaks. He says that he is aware that the body should never be left face down on the table, but the reality is that the patient was morbidly obese. And the fact of the matter is that he could not physically get the body flipped over. Hunter tells Garcia that this is not acceptable. It's not an acceptable answer. You are the lead pathologist on the case. It was your responsibility to see that the patient's body was handled properly. If that means that you have to go to an additional staff to get assistance in moving the body, so be it. That's what you should have done. Part of your job is to problem solve. And based on this situation, I have serious misgivings as to whether you are capable of doing so. Did you even alert anyone that the body had been left face down? Garcia ponders. Yes, I told the supervising faculty member. What came of that conversation? Nothing. He gave me no guidance whatsoever. At this point, Hunter invites another doctor into the room. He stands in the corner and says nothing. Garcia is puzzled as to what is happening. Hunter continues, Well, I'm sorry, Anthony. We are going to terminate your contract at the end of June for what we believe is good cause. This is not an isolated incident. 
your inability to find a common ground with Dr. Butra, and your interactions with other staff has been unacceptable. Anthony again sits quietly. He's not surprised. Hell, he was even expecting it. He knew that Butra was not going to stop until he was gone. He tells Hunter, I understand your position, doctor. Hunter looks at the resident and cannot read him from his utter lack of response of any kind. These conversations are usually met with great resistance coming from the resident. Garcia is truly an enigma. Hunter tells Garcia that it is his hope that he will tender a letter of resignation in lieu of being fired. The difference as far as appearance sake in terms of continuing your medical career is substantial. A straight termination can be a death knell to one's career. Further, he tells them that he'll be willing to write a letter of recommendation on his behalf for any program that he may apply to. Garcia tells him that he understands and he needs to think about it a bit. As this has taken him by surprise, not complete surprise, but he needs time to gather his thoughts and decide what is the best approach. Hunter tells Garcia that he understands completely and that he is sorry that it has come to this. But he also tells him, I don't want there to be any confusion, Anthony. If you can test this in any way, we will be forced to start for cause proceedings against you. And once that occurs, we are required to inform the National Data Bank of the circumstances. Once that happens, any potential state medical license applied for, any job applied for, they will all be made aware of what happened here. It's a massive impediment one that you can avoid by simply resigning. Garcia stands and says nothing other than, I'll be in touch. Hunter watches the resident leave the room. Shortly after this meeting occurs at approximately 2.40 p.m., Hunter drafts an email, which is sent to HR and Roger Brumbeck. He outlines the discussion that took place and informs all recipients that at, quote, 1.15 p.m., I did give notice to Dr. Garcia with a witness in the room. Little response, but said that he understood and implied that he will go quietly. I said I would like a letter of resignation. He told me that he'd think about it. I suspect we may be seeing his lawyer. I warned him that if he contests this in any way, that we will be forced to start for-cause proceedings, which will go into the National Data Bank. Hunter hits send then begins composing another email to the head of the Office of Risk Management, which reads, Just to fill you in a bit, we were planning to give Dr. Garcia notice today for numerous bouts of inappropriate behavior and for sloppy work. The autopsy issue is just one more example of his nonchalant attitude to our professional activities. I did inform him of our decision today at 1.15 p.m. He had little reaction, but I suspect he may hire a lawyer. He was threatening to sue Dr. Butra for abusive behavior last Friday. I hope he takes our offer to go quietly. Otherwise, he'll have trouble finding another position. He finishes the draft, and with a click of the send button, Garcia's time at Creighton appears to be done. Now, the difficulty in trying to get a firm grasp on what actually transpired at Creighton with respect to Garcia is that none of us were there. None of us witnessed what occurred. None of us know for certain who the antagonizer was in the Garcia and Butro relationship. 
The facts that I have laid before you come directly from the records tendered to the state by Creighton. Then the state tendered them to us in discovery. And it's the entire contents of Garcia's personnel file. It contains memos, reports, emails, letters, transcripts, in short, everything. At least, everything that Creighton wants in Garcia's file. Remember that first and foremost, that Creighton is a private university. It is a business, and making money, as with any business, is of paramount concern. That being the case, liability is always a concern for the board of directors. Not only liability, but appearances as well. When civil suits are filed against a business or a private citizen, those become public record. The business of privatized education is a lucrative one and competitive. As all universities, law schools, medical schools, business schools, you name it, are in the competition to draw the best students to their institutions. In the education game, reputation is everything. I mean, think about it. If someone tells you that they went to Harvard, you think two things immediately, which is, number one, the person is probably smart, and two, that they're rich. And that's because Harvard's reputation precedes it. So lawsuits that are filed that claim that faculty members are abusive mentally, physically, or sexually to their students, or that students are being discriminated against based on their race, gender, age, sexual orientation, etc., are incredibly damaging to the reputation of an institution of higher learning. That being the case, they have in-house lawyers and risk management people and lots of them that vet every single potential issue that arises in order to try and keep potentially sticky issues under wraps. Because the reality is, is that the stink of a lawsuit that is filed, which makes serious allegations that tarnish the reputation of the institution, cannot be disposed of in the wash. The stink remains, no matter what the end result of litigation is. Now. This isn't me espousing conspiracy theories. These are facts about the business of education. And it is this backdrop that exists that causes us to have to take everything that we read as far as memos, reports, emails, and anything else that may exist with a fair amount of skepticism and a critical eye, fully understanding that everything that we are reading is being prepared to place the university in the best light possible. We will never see a report in Garcia's file that confirms every claim made by Garcia about how Boutra treated him, because that would not be in the best interest of the bottom line or the reputation of the institution. Now, what we are getting is the story that the university has determined best shields it from liability. Every faculty member, director, chair, and board member is acutely aware of this fact, and they prepare their documents accordingly and don't prepare certain reports for the very same reason. No one wants a smoking gun in the file, which, bottom line, is being done to avoid liability. So as far as Anthony Garcia is concerned, the mishandled autopsy on its face sounds like a nightmare. It exposes the university and its partner hospital to liability. It casts a pall over what we think about Garcia. But I am left wondering, where in the hell was the supervising faculty member in that scenario? 
Why was this left in the hands of a first-year resident? And what was the state of Garcia's mindset that weekend after having just gone through a nightmarish week leading up to it? Let's assume for argument's sake that what Garcia claims about Butra is true, that she is in fact a holy terror to work under, and that her tough love style of teaching absolutely shreds those residents who may possess a fragile psyche, which very well may include Anthony Garcia. And the issue is compounded by the fact that Garcia is fully aware that not only will her behavior go unchecked, but for all intents and purposes, that it will be him that is cast as the villain in the scenario. If that is in fact the case, it casts Anthony in a different light, and therein lies the rub. We just don't know. We are only left to surmise. And if you're sitting there wondering if we were able to ascertain what actually happened at trial, the answer is somewhat. Because you can be sure if I'm presenting this possibility to you, our listeners, that I sure as hell tried to get it out to the jury as well. Because as we've said before, a criminal trial is all about perception. And a large part of a trial lawyer's job is to try and shape the jury's perception of the facts and the defendant. And in this case, it was all of these issues that arose at Creighton that were used by the state in order to create the perception that Anthony Garcia was a problem, that he was unstable, and ultimately, that he was a murderer. And these documents on their face, at first blush, might lead one to buy into that theory. But we are asking you to dig deeper, use common sense, apply your own life experiences. And it is for this reason that we have spent the entirety of this episode combing through the minutia. Because as we have told you before, we don't live in the black and whites of life. We live in the grays. So when we get to the trial, I want you to think back to, and maybe even revisit this episode, because it was this period of time in Garcia's life that was the heart of the state's case. But I digress. Bill Hunter does not hear from Garcia on the 21st, nor for several days thereafter. But the dean of the medical school does, as he receives a letter dated February 20th, from Garcia, as he has drafted a letter in an attempt to make sure that his position is known and that it is known by people outside of the pathology department because his complaints with respect to those in control in that department have fallen on deaf ears and have not been taken into consideration in the final analysis. Dr. Garcia's letter states as follows, during my time spent Working at St. Joseph's Hospital slash Creighton University, I reported to my boss that I have been humiliated, degraded, and made fun of by a certain individual. I tried to prevent myself from being defamed again, but my boss, Bill Hunter, took me into an office with another individual and told me that I will be fired in four months. He told me that if I talked to anyone about what was happening to me, that he would write negative comments about me on the internet and my reputation would be ruined. This person who has humiliated, degraded, and defamed me 
has a long history of doing this to other people in my position. I'm sure some people say that my position is low and that I should be treated any way that she wants to treat me. But everyone, no matter who they are, they should not be degraded and humiliated on a daily basis. If the person who humiliated me was humiliated in the past in the same manner, it was wrong then as it is now. And there's no excuse to continue the cycle of abuse. Should we permit individuals of my profession to be treated like this? Signed, Anthony Garcia. This letter circulates around the pathology department. And on February 27th, in direct response to Garcia's letter, Hunter prepares yet another memo to be placed in Garcia's file. The thrust of this memo is to memorialize the meeting between himself and Garcia. It states, On Monday, February 19th, I met with Anthony Garcia in the presence of another doctor and notified Dr. Garcia that we would not be renewing his contract for the 2001-2002 academic year. I briefly reviewed the reasons for this action and explained to Dr. Garcia that if he continues his service responsibilities in a satisfactory manner, that he will receive 12 months credit for the entire pathology training period. We encouraged him to find another residency program. I also explained that if he wished to dispute our action or brought grievance charges against any faculty member, that we would have no alternative but to begin proceedings for immediate dismissal for cause. I explained that in this case, our action would become a matter of public record and would be in the Physician National Data Bank. I requested a letter of resignation and Dr. Garcia indicated he understood and would be seeking another position. On March 1st of 2001, in response to Garcia's letter, the Dean wrote the following back. Dear Dr. Garcia, I received your letter of 2201 regarding your treatment. I assume that you are a resident or fellow in the Department of Pathology. If so, your complaint first should go to your department chair, Dr. Brumbeck. I will forward a copy of your letter to Dr. Brumbeck for investigation of the complaint. So Garcia is circled back into the lion's den by the dean. The writing is on the wall. This is a pathology department issue, and that is where the issue will remain. Anthony has some serious decisions to make, and the time to make them is running short. He realizes that this is not a battle that he's going to win. He is tortured by the thought of having to write a written apology to Butra, but it appears that it may be his only course of action. The only question is, will he be able to bring himself to do it? Can it get any worse for Garcia Creighton, or has he finally hit rock bottom? Find out the answers to those questions on the next episode of Defense Diaries. So a quick shout out to our patrons who we love and adore. Thank you guys for your continued support. If you haven't joined up yet, come on in. Join the fun. We love the support. It means so much to us. And to you, our beautiful, beautiful listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you for continuing to listen every week. Because as you know, without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. <laughs>